America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is The Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day before a great weekend with the great event of the Academy Awards coming up Sunday. We'll talk about that for a few minutes later in the show. It is interesting, especially because there is very likely to be a gigantic shakeup uh, between the Hollywood establishment and a group of rebels who are maybe more populist in their attitude. The uh, long-favored favorite film for Best Picture of the Year, the film that won 12 Oscar nominations, Power of the Dog, uh, may not win a first prize at this particular dog show. And how will it be upset? has to do with the voting reforms that the Academy brought in. Sound familiar? We will get to that on the Medved Show. There's also very big news on the um, now uh, sharply contested nomination of Katanji Brown-Jackson to be the next Associate Justice on the Supreme Court. I still think it's very likely she'll be confirmed, uh, but there was some good news for her today and some bad news for her today. The bad news was that after being, I think, deservedly critical of some of the questioning she received, particularly from Senator Josh Hawley in uh, articles by our friend Andy McCarthy, the National Review, the leading conservative journal, has come out with a strong editorial urging Republican senators to vote no on her confirmation. Why? Uh, we will get to that in the Michael Medved show. But first up, the biggest news involving where the president uh, has been uh, visiting with troops uh, close to the front of battle. Of course, we don't have any American troops in Ukraine nor will we, though a comment that the president made in passing while he was meeting with the 82nd Airborne in Poland, uh, that comment has caused all kinds of wonderment in diplomatic and media circles about what Biden really has in mind. But I'll tell you what is very clear is that more and more people, uh, led, of course, by Volodymyr Zelensky, have something in mind. It's called victory. And front page of the New York Times today, Dateline Kiev, a, a month into a war that began with widespread expectations of a quick Russian rout, Ukraine's military has begun a counteroffensive that has altered the current dynamic of the fighting. The question is no longer how far Russian forces have advanced, but whether the Ukrainians are now pushing them back. Ukraine has blown up parked uh, Russian helicopters in the south, and on Thursday, yesterday, it destroyed a naval ship in the Sea of Azov. Its forces struck a uh, Russian resupply convoy in the northeast. Western and Ukrainian officials also have claimed progress in fierce fighting around the capital of Kiev. The uh, assorted gains in territory are hard to qualify or to, uh, to verify. In at least one crucial battle in a suburb of Kiev, where Russian troops have made their closest approach to the capital, brutal street fighting still raged on Thursday night. And it was not clear that Ukraine had regained any substantial ground. But even this muddled picture of Ukrainian progress is helpful for the country's messaging 
to its citizens and to the world that it is now taking the fight to a foe with superior numbers and weaponry and not just hunkering down to play defense. And it underscores the uh, flawed planning and execution that has bedeviled Russian forces from the start, including supply shortages and demoralizing conditions for its soldiers. These missteps have enabled Ukraine to unexpectedly go on the offensive. In particular, writes the Times, by preventing Russian troops from capturing Irpin, a suburban town about 12 miles from the center of Kiev, Ukraine showed that its strategy of sending small units out from the capital to engage the Russians, often in ambushes, has had great success, at least for now. Western governments have issued cautiously optimistic assessments of the counteroffensive. In an intelligence report released Wednesday by the British Ministry of Defense, that report said the Ukrainian moves were increasing pressure on the Russians to the east of Kyiv and that Ukraine uh, and its soldiers have probably retaken, uh, they say, uh, Makariv and another small town directly north of the capital. Now, none of this means that the war is over, but it means that people are talking about victory, about actually winning this war, not simply holding off the Russians. And in fact, the Wall Street Journal today had a major editorial that uh, said that the administration has to take care not to give up on these gains and to simply settle at this point for what people call a dirty deal, where a Putin would give up on taking over, decapitating the government, as he had originally said was the goal of his invasion. He'd give up on that deal, but he wouldn't give up some of the territory he's already occupied. And of course, it'll be easier uh, to keep him from insisting on staying in that territory if two things happen. Number one, and most importantly, if uh, the Americans and the rest of NATO uh, do, do not retreat on their demand, which has to be clear, clear, clear and unequivocal, that sanctions do not go away. They only intensify the economic pressure on Russia, the economic pain that the Russian people are, are receiving because of Putin's evil war, that none of that goes away if there are any troops left occupying Ukrainian soil. Now, that may not apply to Crimea, where in Crimea there's at least an argument that the majority of people there, they staged a... Um, uh, a referendum in Crimea after Putin marched in, invaded, and took it. And the majority of people in Crimea who are Russian speakers uh, were at that time uh, in favor of being part of Russia, not being part of Ukraine. Okay. But for the rest of Ukraine, for the other cities that uh, President uh, Putin has taken over, including Kherson, there's a just, just heard it. 15 minutes ago, there's now a bulletin that at least for much of the district of Kherson, which was one of the first places that uh, Russia actually took over, they've been driven out. And that 
gives the Americans a much stronger chance to say, okay, if you want the sanctions to go away, there has to be a general pullback. And what else makes it easier to take that position is the more and more areas that, uh, that the Russians confront where they have been pushed back. The, the question is, how much is Putin really ready to risk? Is he ready to risk nuclear exchanges with the United States in behalf of this evil and misbegotten war? 1-800-955-1776. The other thing, and there was good news for this basically from Brussels. No, I don't believe that President Biden showed himself to be the second coming of Ronald Reagan. I wish that he had. He is not a, uh, uh, a memorable or particularly skilled public speaker. But what was a, a very encouraging was the unity that was reflected by all of those 30 NATO nations, by all of the people in the G7, unity and common purpose, and it's actually inspiring. There's a very inspiring piece by the uh, Prime Minister of Estonia. Estonia used to be part of Russia. It's one of those three Baltic republics. It's a, a nation of 1.3 million people, but they have an exploding economy. They're one of the most prosperous nations in the world. And uh, the 44-year-old uh, female, uh, very charismatic prime minister, has a piece talking about how NATO can actually win and must win. We will get to that and to more coming up on The Medved Show. going into a great weekend. This is the first official weekend of spring, right? I mean, spring starts March 21st and cherry blossoms in the beautiful quad at University of Washington. My wife and I went up there the other day and it's spectacular. Lots of people and spring breaking out and new hope breaking out and new reasons to celebrate. Now, I don't mean to sound gruesome or bloodthirsty, but one reason to celebrate, just breaking news, breaking just hours ago, the Daily Mail in Britain is reporting um, about a Russian general who uh, spoke, gave a memorable speech, stirring speech to his troops. This is for Russian troops and telling them that war would be over in days and Russia would be safe from the dreaded invasion by Ukraine, which, of, of course, is the gigantic lie with which Putin uh, justified his war, especially for the new recruits and reinforcements that are being rushed over to Ukraine from Russia. Why? Because they've already lost 10%, at least 10% of the fighting force they came in with. Uh, the new estimates from the British Ministry of Defense are uh, close to 50,000 Russians either dead or captured or missing in action, which in some cases means desertion. In any event, there was a, an, an individual general, and uh, he just got killed. This makes six generals among 16 officers with the rank of captain or higher who have met their end in Ukraine in the past month. And, uh, uh, it, it, again, this was announced, this new death, by the Ukrainians. 
and uh, people, supporters of Russia, say, oh, well, this is just lies, it's propaganda. If it were lies and propaganda, it would be easy enough, as the Daily Mail points out, for the Russians to say that and to produce the general who's a real guy and appeared on TV, uh, to produce the general who just got killed. And one of the things that also indicates that these are not lies is they have um, begun showing funerals, state funerals that are given to some of these martyred Russian soldiers who have given their lives for this evil mission. Uh, there's, there's more, uh, a further report that Putin loses his 15th top commander as Ukraine continues to take out elite troops. This colonel, this is in addition to the general, is the latest to die as Russia suffers the worst loss of military leaders since World War II. Colonel Alexei Sharov became the latest Russian commander to die in what has become the country's biggest loss of military leaders. Sharov's death was announced by Ukrainian armed forces on social media. Uh, the commander of the 810th Guards Separate Order of Zhukov Brigade in the Russian Marines... Sharov was reportedly killed in Mariupol. Mariupol has been emptied out of its population. Eighty percent of its pre-war population has left. The kind of the city is ninety percent destroyed, but not surrendered. At least nine hundred and two civilians have been killed and one thousand four hundred fifty-nine wounded in Ukraine as of uh, midnight on March 19th, so that's a couple of days ago, that's according to the Human Rights Office of the United Nations. And Sharov is the fifth colonel to die, marks 15 members of Russia's top military command to have died in the invasion. Okay, why does this matter? It matters because the very dynamic and charismatic and a future world leader is a... Uh, uh, Kaya Kalas, who is um, the Prime Minister of Estonia. Now, Estonia is a wonderful country with a very rich culture and a rich literary tradition and musical tradition and everything else. It's a tiny little country of 1.3 million, but it's now a NATO country. And it's one of the leading countries in NATO right after the United States, and the percentage of its gross domestic product that they give to supporting the fight for freedom, which is what NATO is about, defending freedom, defending liberty, defending sovereignty, as in here in Ukraine. And she begins a column today that everyone in the whole world should read, honest to goodness. She talks at the beginning about some of the horrors that Putin's thugs have perpetrated. And yes, you can feel sorry for the Russian troops, so many of whom have died, given their lives, but they are giving their lives to an evil cause. And it is like Hitler and Stalin, as she writes. She writes, to put an end to these horrors, the most optimistic observers have put their hope in a peace deal. But peace is not going to break out tomorrow. We must face up to the fact that the Kremlin's idea of European and global security is completely at odds with that of the free world. And if Vladimir Putin is willing to kill and repress and destroy en masse for the sake of it. At NATO, our focus must be simple. Mr. Putin cannot win this war. He cannot even think he is won or his appetite will grow. 
We need to demonstrate the will and commit resources to defend NATO territory, to check Russia's aggression. We need to put in place a long-term policy of smart containment. First, we must help Ukraine in every possible way. The people of Ukraine have not tired, and neither can we. True, Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine has galvanized us into action. Allies and partners have made decisions with remarkable determination and unity, but now is the time to go the extra mile. And what does that mean? Prime Minister Kalas says uh, that Ukrainian soldiers are able fighters, but they need weapons, they need materiel, including longer-range air defense assets and anti-tank missiles to better protect their skies. Defensive military aid must be our top priority, and we must commit to uh, that aid for the long haul. In Estonia, a country of 1.3 million people, we have provided Ukraine with close to 250 million worth of assistance so far. Much of that is military, but it extends to ambulances, blankets, and baby food. The free world should redouble its efforts to support the people of Ukraine, however possible, through the delivery of arms, food, and daily essentials. Second, we must show the aggressor that we are ready to defend ourselves and, if need be, to fight them. Sometimes the best way to achieve peace is to be willing to use military strength. Peace through strength, Reagan said. To do so, says Prime Minister Kalas, we need to strengthen our collective defense, especially on the alliance's eastern flank that borders Russia. That's why in Estonia, we are increasing the amount we spend on defense. This year, we'll spend 2.3% of GDP. In the coming years, that will rise to 2.5%. All NATO countries, irrespective of their location, should do the same. 2% of GDP must become an absolute minimum requirement. Donald Trump made that point, too. By increasing our spending individually, we can ensure that we are all collectively safer. So in the United States, we have another question of safety. The outbreak of mass shootings. Why is that going on suddenly in the country in 2022? We'll talk to David Leonhard of the New York Times. Coming up. You trust your mother, right? Michael Medved show. It is an honor to welcome back to the show David Leonhardt, who is one of my favorite writers for the New York Times. He writes uh, The Morning, which is the Times flagship daily newsletter, which I personally find indispensable. And he also writes for the Sunday Review. He's been with the Times since 1999 and uh, won a Pulitzer Prize for commentary in the process. David, uh, your latest column, your latest piece for the morning, Nine Mass Shootings, takes a look at the fact that uh, mass shootings are defined by experts as an event in which four or more people are shot dead. Uh, last weekend, there were nine of them across the U.S. And the question you ask in the piece is, why is this going on? And you suggest there's no easy answer. So what do we do? 
Thanks for that nice introduction. I appreciate it. Um, it's nice to be back on the show. Uh, yeah, it's hard, right? It's hard to solve a problem um, if you can't fully diagnose it. Uh, now, sometimes I think we can make progress against a problem without fully without fully solving it, so we shouldn't give up. But just to start with, um, very briefly, the data, um, many kinds of violent crime are up. They started rising uh, shortly after the pandemic began. Um, I think um, if you look at the best estimate of murders nationwide, they're up about 30% since the middle of 2020. Um, they are still well below the extremely high levels of the 70s and 80s and early 90s, but they're at their highest point in 20 years. And um, obviously, it's terrible in all kinds of ways. It's terrible for the victims, above all, um, but it also creates, you know, really broader problems, um, fear, distrust. I grew up in New York in the 1980s, um, and um, it felt very different then than it has for most of, most of the last 20 years or so, and I, I wouldn't want to go back to the era um, when street crime was quite common in New York. I was mugged twice in the 80s, attacked physically once in the street. I was fine, but it's sort of unfathomable, unfathomable to imagine that happening um, just kind of as you go about your business today. And we don't want to go back to that kind of. So no, what's sir. causing it? Um, it's really hard to know, and we can talk through some of the, talk through some of the answers. I, I think some of the things that's important is, is a lot of people in politics often want to glom onto really simple answers, like it's this or it's that. Uh, almost all those simple answers crumble when you look at the full evidence. Well, for instance, a lot of people say it's the pandemic, and you point out that Britain, Canada, France, Japan, and elsewhere, the violent crime has held relatively steady. They have not had this huge upsurge during the pandemic. Uh, people... Uh, also often will say very simplistically it's because during the pandemic people felt insecure and they bought more guns but you make the point that again that uh, doesn't indicate America's difference here from uh, from other societies and it's not that simple what I think is fascinating is you come up with citing the work of a number of people who have studied this over the years that it's really alienation, the idea that, that people don't trust their neighbors, that they feel that the authorities who are presiding over the government, the 80%, according to Gallup, who think America's headed in the wrong direction, that that sensibility, which you can feel all around you in America, actually is not just unpleasant, it's deadly. Yes. Um, and so, uh, look, I do think the pandemic probably plays a role. I do think um, there's all kinds of evidence that um, greater availability of guns often leads to more violent crime. So I'm not dismissing some of those individual factors. But I think the broader explanation is um, both ephemeral, but also really fits with the facts in a way that some of the other explanations don't. So, for example, um, when you look at it, you see that all kinds of measures of societal health have deteriorated over the last two years. And that's why I do think the pandemic plays a role. I think it's hard to figure out exactly why that effect has been worse in the U.S. than other countries. But, you know, vehicle crashes are way up. Drug overdoses are way up. Mental health problems are up. A study alcoholism, of alcohol deaths, alcoholism. your paper ran a, a, a whole item on it. 
Yeah, I mean, so basically you sort of look at, at almost, I mean, it's almost like you pick your measure of social health and it's deteriorated during the pandemic on top of the pandemic's huge direct costs. And so when you see something like that and you're trying to think about, okay, how do we explain rising crime in the context of that? I think it's important to remember that the biggest cause is probably not something super specific to crime, but it's instead would be something could also explain a lot of these other developments. And there are a whole bunch of criminal criminologists. Gary LaFree is one of them. Randall Roth is one of them. Who Randolph Roth, who have pointed out that if you sort of look in history, you also see that often see that crime moves with some of these sort of broader measures of societal frustration. And look, it's not a perfect relationship in social science. There almost never are. But I have to say, when I read their work, I find it really quite striking. I mean, if you're trying to think about, well, why did crime rise so much in the 60s and 70s? And, you know, conservatives wanted to say it's because courts were being weak. And liberals wanted to say it was because of poverty. But it's really hard to see how those things were actually changing nearly as rapidly as crime was rising. But when you look at measures of societal frustration, um, they really did track with crime. And I think there's a chance that we're seeing a similar version of that now. It's scary, um, but if we want to try to address the problem, uh, we should try to diagnose it with a fairly open mind. So part of what, what you're talking about here is something that politics should be able to address, which is at least returning some feeling of community, of common purpose, of at least the ability to talk to one another. I, I just finished writing a piece about the tendency in American politics today for Democrats to call Republicans evil and vice versa. I mean, it's not healthy for a country and maybe actually dangerous, as you point out in your piece. If you got literally millions of people who think the other side isn't just wrong, they're evil. They want to destroy the country. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And I do think that's very dangerous. And look, we are going to have passionate disagreements in a democracy. That's the way it should be. Um, and uh, it's okay for those disagreements. I mean, those disagreements tend to involve matters of life and death, right? Should we uh, expand our health care system? How should we do it? Those, those, these, the, the stakes are high, and so I understand why people can get very passionate. Should we let other people into this country? For those people, that can be a matter of life and death. Um, so the stakes are going to be high. But I think it's really important to remember that even when the stakes are high, if in our democracy we decide that on every single issue that the other side is basically, if they disagree with me, uh, they are evil, as you say, they are doing something uh, that is terrible and will harm people. I think that society kind of breaks down. And I know the line from that to any individual crime is, is indirect at best. But I think it's clear that when you have a society where fellow feeling, as sociologists and political scientists like to call it, breaks down, when, I don't, when if I don't see other Americans uh, as being worth much, it creates an atmosphere that leads to deterioration of all kinds, including greater willingness of people to break the rules, which at the end of the day is just sort of a general way to describe what crime is. 
And the surge in crime, the piece by David Leonhardt is a must read. It's profoundly insightful, I think, and, and provocative. It's called Nine Mass Shootings. May we heal and get better and look up. Coming up on The Medved Show, 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show, all across America. I really enjoy your program. I listen to talk radio all day. You're definitely right up there, the cream of the crop. This is The Michael Medved Show. Michael Medved show, I think it's safe to ask, how do we recapture that uh, sense of common purpose, that, that sense of being together with other Americans in a struggle for things that matter? And that's why uh, the, the war in Ukraine right now provides an opportunity to reaffirm that sense of American purpose. And it's uh, the biggest and most clear-cut opportunity to do that reaffirmation that I can remember, even more than 9-11. Because in 9-11, we were looking for these criminal conspiracies that existed, uh, that were threatening the United States. But uh, that, that was part of the problem with Iraq, is that I think that many people wanted to use Iraq as a rallying cry for the country, but we won the aspect of that war just as quickly as we were supposed to. This is different because what this is doing is not an attempt to remake the world in a uh, more freedom-loving, liberty-assuring mold. It's, it's not remaking anything. It's a way of defending what we have already won. We won the Cold War. And part of the most important fruits of that were liberty for countries like Estonia. We were just talking about the prime minister who says we have to make sure not only that Ukraine wins, but that uh, Putin understands that Ukraine won and he lost to discourage him from going after Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania and Moldova and uh, other countries that uh, the Russian bear would love to gobble up. The, uh, The fact that we are not working at the moment against a normal country is shown by the determination to murder civilians. And and again and again and again, there's news that, um, do you remember that there was a theater in Mariupol, which is the uh, city in Ukraine that has suffered most from the indiscriminate Russian bombing and shelling and flat out murdering. And uh, there was a theater called the Drama Theater big theater in the center of town that had been bombed by Russians, despite the fact that the Ukrainians had written the word, big word, so pilots could see it that said children, because it wasn't being used as a theater. People weren't coming to watch plays or movies or anything like that in the midst of a war. It was being used as a shelter 
for people because it was one of those big old theaters with thick walls. In any event, uh, they had more than a thousand people in there seeking shelter. Most got out, but 300 at, at least appear to have been killed, which is horrible. The uh, That was a bombing on March 16th. The European Union has just signed a major gas deal with the U.S. to reduce reliance on Russian energy. U.S. President Joe Biden landed in Poland today where he is set to meet with U.S. troops, he just did, and aid workers assisting refugees from Ukraine. The polls have been magnificent. You, you can't look at what that country has done rising to the occasion without just feeling proud that this is our ally and, and proud of what human beings are capable of achieving. Some of the people they have spoken to, and they're, again, there are over 20,000 and about a fourth of them from the United States, about 5,000 from the United States. These are people who are members of the International Legion for Defense of Ukraine, people who have come from abroad, many of them with military experience, to try to put their lives on the line and use their skills to defend liberty. Because this is not just a Ukrainian fight. It's not just a Polish fight. It's not just a European fight. It is a worldwide fight. And by the way, if uh, people worry about China and they're right to worry about China, nothing could discourage future Chinese aggression more than a clear victory for Ukraine in this war of survival. Um, the uh, United Kingdom, UK Defense Ministry, has said that uh, counterattacks by Ukraine and uh, Russia falling back on overextended supply lines has allowed Ukraine to seize back towns and positions up to 22 miles east of Kiev. And east is, that's where the Russians came from. They came from the east. So this is really potentially a turning of the tide. The Associated Press writes that President Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine is approaching a new, potentially more dangerous phase after a month of fighting has left Russian forces stalled by an outnumbered foe. He is left with stark choices, writes the AP, how and where to replenish his spent ground forces. One of the ships that the Ukrainians succeeded in blowing up, Russian ships, which is terrific, they don't have that much of a navy, Ukrainians, but they were able to destroy a series of Russian ships. And uh, one of them was a supply ship that was trying to bring food to hungry troops. The um, Putin has left, writes way, the Associated Press, with stark choices, how and where to replenish his spent ground forces, whether to attack the flow of Western arms to Ukrainian defenders, and at what cost he might escalate or widen the war. Despite failing to score a quick victory, Putin is not relenting in the face of mounting international pressure, including sanctions that have battered his economy. The uh, Western world is aligned largely against Putin, but there have been no indications he is losing support from the majority of the Russian people who rely almost exclusively on state-controlled TV for information. I, I've listened to some of the international broadcasts, however, about how many Russian broadcasters, people who work for these state-controlled TV stations and radio stations, and there have been people who have been quitting on him. 
I mean, giving up their lives, some of them leaving Russia. Now hundreds of thousands of people just trying to get out of Russia. And, and this has to be significant. The Wall Street Journal um, has a wonderful editorial, and I'm very grateful for it. It says, Ukraine can win with enough help. Biden and NATO are still too cautious in opposing Putin's war. The stunning fact of this war is that the Ukrainians have rescued Europe and the U.S. as much as NATO is assisting Ukraine. Kyiv's stalwart resistance at great human cost has given the West a chance to stop the advance of Russian imperialism before it imperils NATO itself. The war has exposed the Russian military as weaker than our intelligence services and the Pentagon thought, and against all expectations, Ukraine may be winning. Most surprising, the Ukrainian resistance, they write in the Wall Street Journal, has renewed a sense among the people of the West that their countries stand for something. Something more than welfare state ease and individual indulgence. Ukrainians are showing that freedom has a price, often a fearsome one. President Biden is rightly outraged by Mr. Putin's brutality and he calls him a war criminal, but he still seems afraid of doing what it takes to defeat him. Europeans now understand the mistake they made on energy and are changing their policies, but Mr. Biden refuses to set aside his climate change obsessions to address this world-changing crisis. His regulators are still targeting U.S. oil and gas production for slow extinction. He will have little credibility in persuading Germans and Italians to make sacrifices if he won't help them meet their energy needs now and next winter. It's hard to resist the conclusion that Mr. Putin has succeeded in intimidating Mr. Biden and other leaders with the threats of nuclear escalation. This concern may justify the decision not to assist Ukraine with a NATO no-fly zone, uh, which could require U.S. planes to attack Russian radars and missile defenses inside Russian territory, but it shouldn't be an excuse for caution in doing everything short of that to help Ukrainians defeat Mr. Putin. If the nuclear threat works to stop NATO now, the Russians will use it in the future against NATO proper. The essence of deterrence is credibility, which means persuading Mr. Putin that his resort to nuclear weapons in Ukraine would be met with a requisite response. The same goes for chemical or biological weapons. Look, it's horrible to think about that stuff. But if we don't, then the responsibility of disaster, the possibility of disaster becomes even greater. The homeless disaster, a new book says it has an actually surprisingly simple solution. What is that solution? We'll get to that and more in this greatest nation on God's green earth. <laughs> 